Welcome to another Thursdays with Third Path Live podcast. On every episode, you'll meet thought leaders, role models, and change agents connected to the Third Path community. We've got an exciting season planned where we will be exploring why the new ideal employee is someone just like you, someone who wants to integrate work and life. And if you are inspired by what you hear today, please share our podcast with some of you know and join us again next month. Very shortly, I'll be introducing Matt Becker and Scott Beeson, our guests today. But before I do that, let me provide a big picture of what we'll be discussing. For too many families, the time-money trade-off is a luxury they can't afford. But Bridget Schulte's new podcast series explores these issues and some steps our society can take to address this problem. In the meantime, we hope today's live podcast helps generate some new ideas around your work, family, and financial goals. We've actually had Matt Becker on before, and he helped us think about what you need to do when you're creating your financial plan as a family. And he thinks of it as a kind of constructing your house. And you start by creating a financial blueprint. You start with your goals, your values, how you wanna spend your time. And we're gonna talk more about that. It's a really important concept. He also encourages you to think about your financial foundation. So what are the systems you use to manage your money? How can you purposely direct money towards the things you care most about? And it's interesting. I could tell you that was something Jeff and I, my husband and I had to figure out slowly. It was not an easy process. And while you're doing this, what you're trying to do is develop more financial freedom because of how you were either investing money or paying off debt, saving for important things like college or creating other opportunities that your family really cares about. And he summarizes it by this concept of a life-centered approach to your finances. You want to think about, literally, write down what makes you happy. What are the most important things? Communicate this then with your spouse and partner. Hopefully they're similar. If not, now's the time to figure out how to get on the same page. And I love number five, acknowledge what isn't on your list. That's really been something Jeff and I've done very well together. Then you can turn these into SMART goals and figure out where to take your next steps and action steps. And of course, come back and reevaluate it over time. So those are really great things we're gonna be talking about with Matt Becker. And I'm excited for that part of the conversation because I'm hoping you guys listening in today will get some really good ideas for your own personal work family goals but I wanted to add another element to today's discussion and remind us that there are some organizations and leaders who are doing things differently. That's why I've invited Scott Beeson to join us. He wrote this wonderful book, The Whole Person Workplace. And in it, you'll see lots of examples of organizations who are thinking smarter about how to pay people better, how to provide better benefits, how to th do things like you know keep everybody's pay transparent, to help promote gender equity. Um, you know, there's even a, a, group, a company, Uncommon Goods, that's lobbied for a higher minimum wage. Um, or Boxed, he'll be talking about, where they are helping people with life-altering events like college, weddings, and unlimited parental leave. So there's lots of organizations that are getting smarter about this. 
And the three of us will probably be talking about this very important number of $70,000. That's the number that what researchers have learned over and over again is, yes, it makes a big difference to earn more money up to $70,000. But after that, there's less of a link between money and happiness. In fact, some research is showing that maybe there's slightly less levels of happiness and satisfaction after that number, which is kind of an interesting concept. All right, so we've got a lot to talk about. We've got Matt Becker joining us. He's the founder of Mom, Dad, Money. He's a shared care dad, and he's been a regular participant in many of our activities. We've got Scott Beeson, a professor of management, author of the book I was just telling you about, consultant speaker. He, too, is a shared care dad and has done a lot of great work in the fatherhood world. Welcome, guys. I'm so glad you're here. Um, really, this is one of those conversations that so many people need help with. Um, it is not an easy issue to figure out your work-life goals and make it work financially for way too many people. Um, but Matt, tell us a little bit about what you've learned. You do a lot of work with young families, and I bet they have some unique issues that they are wrestling with. And what are some ways that you get them started to get off in the right direction? Yeah, thanks, Jessica. Really excited to be here uh, with you and Scott. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think that that stat you put up there about 70,000 is such a crucial number because, you know, there is a certain point at which you need to make enough money to kind of survive and provide for your basic needs, make sure you have those met. Beyond that, it's so easy to get caught up in, I would say, a consumer driven culture. I have a lot of clients who come to me just with a lot of anxiety about, are we making the right decisions? Are we contributing? Am I investing right? Do I have all these things? And those are important questions. But for me, it's always important to take the time to step back and kind of ask some of those questions that you showed on those slides. You know, who, who are you, right? What's important to you? What, what, what values do you have? How would you like to be spending your time? What kinds of opportunities do you want for yourselves, for your children? Um, one of the questions I always ask clients is, why is money important to you? Because it starts to strip away this, should I be doing this, this, and this? And really, what is the heart of it that we're trying to accomplish here? So that you can approach those financial decisions from a personal perspective and actually make decisions that align with the things that matter to you. Yeah, I think that actually you hit the nail on the head. You're reminding me that for those who are listening in today, we have a lot of free resources on our website. And uh, one of the resources we hope to put up next week is one of the ones that we talk helps people think about their their values and their strengths around money. I don't know if you see this, Matt. I find that sometimes people are really aware of all that they're doing wrong. They're always feeling like they're coming in short, no pun intended. Um, sometimes very real, they're coming in short, but also just they're feeling that way. And we have some ideas about how we help couples around that. Um, what do you do to help people manage their feelings around money and gain pers better perspective around money? Yeah, that is a great point because that is actually very common. What I see is clients coming to me who have actually done a lot of really good things and have a really strong foundation in place, have a lot of good pieces in place, but they don't know that because to them, it just feels like I've kind of done this and I've done that and I've done this and it feels all over the place. It feels very disjointed. And part of the reason for that, again, is there is no kind of why. There is no mission statement beyond I'm supposed to be making good, responsible financial decisions. And so what I try to do, again, is start from the why, 
And I actually write a mission statement for each client, usually one sentence, sometimes two, but it's usually one, just what is it that we're working towards here? And that again is really from a personal perspective. And then all of the financial decisions that we're making, all of the pieces of the plan that we're putting in place can tie back to that mission statement. And hopefully it can be clear, one, how all of these pieces fit together, but also how they're all working together to you know, put you in progress towards these things that actually matter to you. And so again, tying it back to um, what's important to you. Uh, and also, you know, there, there are a lot of financial decisions to make. It is confusing. Getting some help, getting some clarity around why are we doing all of these things? How do they all fit together as opposed to just feeling like each one is just kind of a, a piecemeal thing that they've done along the way? Yeah, yeah. I want to talk specifically about debt and housing, some issues that I think young families are, are wrestling with. Um, but before we talk about that, back to those feelings things, I wonder if this resonates with you. Uh, if if when we when you get when you download that handout about money from our free resources page, we'd start by encouraging couples to think about each other's strengths. And so I think about what my strength is around earning money, saving money, not necessarily spending too much money. You know, so there's there's these ways that we can kind of be thinking about what we bring to the quote unquote financial equation that are our strengths and then recognizing what our partner brings as a strength. And again, by starting with those strengths, sometimes couples together talking about money can get a little heated. And so you're starting by thinking about what you both do well. So for example, Jeff and I, I'm really good at it being sa a saver. And, um, and luckily that was something that he also was really open to. Um, and so, and he was much better at putting in systems in place to, to kind of take track, keep track of things. And together those have helped us both over the years meet our mission. Uh, does that sound familiar? Uh, helping couples think about their strengths, not getting caught up in some struggles around that stuff? Yeah, well, <laughs> I've never put it exactly the way you just put it, but I think that is really beautiful and powerful the way, the way because I do, I see a lot with couples who have different approaches to money, different feelings. Some, you know, where one person wants to be more aggressive, one person is a little more cautious, you know, and they can argue about that because <laughs> it's a difference of opinion. And usually the right path is somewhere in the middle, right? Or yeah. some combination. And so I, I love, I love the way you put that, focusing on your strengths um, and using those strengths to um, kind of harness the resources available to you. Um, and because there's no one way to do this is the other part of this, right? There are yeah. lots of different paths. And so, um, focusing on what worked for you. That's great. Yeah. yeah. So I want to talk about, uh, debt and housing for a second. I'm going to give a quick personal story. Um, but, uh, obviously I want to expand it beyond, you know, my personal story, uh, you know, and back to your mission statement, um, very briefly who my family is. I should not be living where I live. I should not be living in the style of house I should be living in. I should be living somewhere much more fancy in a much fancier house. But that wasn't my mission statement. That wasn't Jeff's mission statement. We both wanted something else from our lives. Time was important and a lot of other things besides fancy. And but what that meant for us was, you know, being able to keep our expenses so much lower and therefore paying off our mortgage sooner. And, you know, now at this stage of my life where I'm closer to the end of my career, you know, having really been able to afford 
changes in the next stage because we've really kept our expenses and debt low. Um, it creates a lot of freedom at this stage of our, our career. Um, I, I know I have some luxuries in my ability to do that. That's not something everybody's going to be able to do. But, you know, that was a choice that we were really careful about. What's our mission? How do we keep our expenses low? How do we keep our debt low? And it's really paid off, uh, no pun intended, in the long run. I would imagine debt and housing are some of the sticky points that you get into with young families. How do you help them think bigger? Well, there's certainly a lot of shame that people feel around mm -hmm. debt in particular. Um, mm -hmm. And that's just one thing I, I would like to say, you know, there, there's no shame in wherever you're at right now. Um, and, you know, whether you have debt or you don't. And so it comes back to, again, kind of this, this dual goal here of identifying what is important to you. And then also, as you point out in that list, what isn't important to you? Because what you just talked about a little bit are making some choices that were different than maybe what your family would have, the rest of your family might have done because you guys were purposeful about these things are not important to us, right? And being clear about that really can help you avoid getting caught up in the whole keeping up with the Joneses or doing things just because it's the way it's done, right? Um, so in terms of moving forward, that could be really helpful in terms of avoiding unnecessary debt, right? Is being clear what matters to you, what doesn't. Um, beyond that, I think it's just, it's just facing it the way it is, you know, this is what our situation is without any judgment. What's the best way we can tackle this? Even if it's just one extra dollar every month towards that credit card bill, right? That's, that's a start. Um, and, you know, putting one foot in front of the other, um, getting some help. There are lots of free, um, agencies from the, I think it's a national federation of credit counseling. I'm not hundred percent sure if I'm remembering that name, right? that does a lot of work with people who might have a lot of debt and can help help with that. So taking those steps, housing is a tough one because it's just so expensive, right? <laughs> and there's not a whole lot you can do about it, whether you're trying to buy or you're trying to rent. Um, it costs a lot of money. Now, you and I were emailing a little bit before, and I loved some of the ideas you you put out there. So I don't know if you want to talk about that a little bit, but it, it's certainly, it's a huge, huge issue for the clients I work with in terms of just being able to afford a house being able to live somewhere they want to live and just you know it, it's expensive and it's it is a big challenge yeah yeah i love your point about shame um and we're going to get to you scott in a second um uh, because there's some things that organizations are doing that are going to help us with some of this stuff because by the way you know we live in a country where there is just enormous costs to go to college if you go to college and debt from that etc cetera, etc cetera, and that's not our fault and that could be done really differently um, let's not even get into the costs of healthcare, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so we, what we were talking about before Matt was that, you know, in the third path community, there's a bunch of people who are really willing to think differently around how to do this. And so for each of the examples I'm about to give you, there's a person I could tell you who's done this exact thing around the housing challenge. So I know somebody who purposely bought a house where they could rent a space, a separate apartment as a way to help cover the cost of the house? That's a simple answer if you can afford to find a place like that. With remote work more of an option these days, there are so many people who are living in a more affordable place because then their rent goes down or their mortgage goes down and they can do their work anywhere. So that's another option today that really is 
much more possible than it was before. Um, I'm increasingly hearing about families who are sharing. So I know this one family, they purposely bought a house that was big enough for the family and the parents and kind of a separate space that the parents used. So there was some privacy between the two families, but some common space too, and all the benefits that can come from that. I've heard about siblings sharing, renting, renting a space together, or even buying a house together. So again, creative answers are out there. The last one I just recently heard about on the New York Times was uh, some younger people living with grandparents because the grandparents have a space. The younger person don't quite have the income yet. What a beautiful idea for everybody involved. So again, I think there's some outside the box solutions depending on where you are in your life cycle. Um, and the more you're willing to kind of think about what's most important to you. And uh, often I think what you'd hear Matt talk about is, you know, as best as possible, reducing debt so you can increase your financial freedom, the better you are. Matt, any more thoughts or advice? Uh, we'll come back to you, but any more thoughts you want to share before we go on to Scott? Uh, no, it's been great. I'd love to hear what Scott has to say. Great. Super. Scott, thank you for being here again. We love your book. We love the work you do. Um, it's so appropriate, the whole person workplace. In order for a whole person workplace to exist, there's many things you talk about in the book, but today we're focusing on how they can be smart about money. I'm so glad you included that in your book. Where was the insight to know that you needed to think about the money side of things? And then let's talk about some of those examples. Yeah, so thank you. Uh, first off, thank you, Jessica, for having me. Matt, awesome conversation, um, really helpful uh, information. Um, Jessa, you and I go way back and we're very well aligned on a lot of these things. And so the whole person workplace, right, the easy way to think about it is like, how do we value employees as more than just what they could return for us in the workplace? You know, do we care about them as people, like outside of work with their other life challenges and priorities? And it's, I think some organizations and many people who think about this are like, oh, that's a nice add-on. So we could add a benefit or add a this or add a that. But I've always been of the opinion, you need to embed your values as an employer, as a company, in what you do, just in your regular approaches to management and human resource management. So I really felt very strongly, and then in all the interviews I did with chief human resources officers and business owners, um, I got to speak to a lot of people who felt the same way, that, you know, yeah, you know, a fancy, you know, like, you know, some perk that makes the news, a dog walking thing or whatever is fine, but like, how about paying a livable wage, right? Or how about giving people like time for life? Um, you know, these are real core elements to what we do in compensation and benefits um, and performance about, you know, how we hire, right? Like you, you could think about it in all these different areas. So I feel it's really important. And especially, here's the thing, the core exchange, right? Like work is a lot of things, uh, the exchange of a lot of things between an employer and an employee. But at heart, it is time and effort for money, right? And everything builds it should be more than that. And I, I fiercely advocate for more than that. But that's the baseline, right? And if that relationship is not good, if that relationship is out of whack, if that, as you said before, you know, leads to an income level that is below a point at which people can feel like stability in their lives, right? They feel a lot more stress in their lives because of it. Then that 
core relationship between employer and employees is, is not good, which means all the other nice stuff to have on top of it really doesn't mean much. So that's why I really, you know, I devoted a chapter of the book uh, to really talking about how employers can think a little more creatively about how you can address some of the financial stressors and challenges of employees. Um, beyond, and part of that is just paying good, livable, good wages uh, all over the, the scale. So um, some employers, the whole thing of the Great Reset and the Great Resignation, right, is a lot of lower income employees or jobs that tended to pay hourly, you know, not so great wages have had to, right, just based on market pressures increase. That's a good thing. Um, but it'd be better if an employer like had the values of this and we're doing it out of um, their genuine commitment to their people as opposed to I'm forced to pay an extra couple bucks an hour. Right. Um, so that's one part of it. But also, you know, there are company. The other thing I really want to do in the whole person workplace is show this is not just for like, oh, you know, the Googles and the whatever's of the world who have like the fancy workplaces and all this other stuff that it's like, you know, employers with hourly employees in all different sectors and blue collar and service work that have and do and can, you know, extend really good financial benefits to, to their employees. So um, thank you. I, I, so that, that's why it's important to me and to the people that I spoke to in writing the book. Um, and I'm happy to talk about specific um, Great. programs and employers and things like that. Too. Yeah. Yeah, I really love that you did give across the economic spectrum examples, you know, so um, Whole Foods, the container store, you know, like these are these are hourly wage jobs where the assumption is and which which Bridget Schulte talks about in that podcast is that they're just going to be, you know, pay the least you can, you know, hope that your employees can just get free benefits from government, you know, subsidies. <laughs> and uh, and it's such a terrible attitude. And these are organizations that are really taking a different approach. So do you want to tell me more about either one of those or one of the one of the organizations that's kind of geared towards more jobs that we don't think of as jobs that where employers are thinking smart about money? Right. So, um, yeah, um, well, most organizations are frankly mixed when it comes to this. Yeah. Right. You have your, you know, your, your management types and your tech types and whatever. And you have warehouse employees or food service yeah. employees or whatever. Um, I mean, the container store is a great example. I mean, their philosophy is they pay 50 to 100% more than their local headquarters, period, end of story. So you want to be a salesperson at at a big box store, where are you going to apply for a job, right? And that allows them to then, you know, uh, hire people who really suit them and their culture, keep them a longer period of time, better customer service, they charge more products, but also like so many people who start at, at hourly, even part-time at a container store, like they wind up moving up into management because they stay, they get developed, et cetera. Uh, but the company I really like to, uh, you know, that, that impresses me the most um, is probably Boxed, which is a, a Newark, New Jersey based, um, you know, it's a kind of like a, it's like a combination between Costco and Amazon, if that makes sense. So like you buy in bulk, but you get it delivered to you. Um, and that's what Box does. So most of their employees are warehouse employees and things like that. Um, but, you know, they pay good wages. But importantly, the uh, the CEO really makes it a point that he wants to support his employees with like life changing, life altering events. And he feels like that's a better use of money than like a ping pong table or, you know, pet services and things like that. And um, so some things he does, it's he pay they pay for the college tuition of all of their employees' children. 
you're a warehouse employee making $25, $28 an hour. That's, and you know, that, that opens up possibilities that were never there before. And even if you're frankly a, um, you know, a quote unquote professional making a hundred thousand dollars a year, you know, that's a huge benefit, right? Um, they also, um, they have unlimited, um, parental leave. You take as much time as you need. And I love the quote that he always says, it's like, everyone comes back ready. Um, and they've had leaves as little as five days and as many as seven months, but people come back on their, their own time. Um, and think about what that does, you know, in terms of financial pressure, but also setting up your family according to your values, right? When, and, you know, Matt talked about that very beautifully in terms of finances, but it, it applies to other aspects of your life too, about shared care um, and, and, you know, and other patterns that you, you really want to get uh, set in your family during that time. Um, also, they um, um, actually, I think it's something like ten to $12,000 for uh, the weddings of employees. Um, and this came from a story where like he had a, a really good employee who was like, just clearly burning out and stressing out about trying to save up for a wedding in addition to some other things they had on his plate. And uh, so I think, you know, those are really above and beyond in a lot of cases. Like people hear those examples, they get a little intimidated by it. But I mean, that's, you know, this is a company that has 2% turnover, um, you know, and yeah, why would you leave, right? Um, and so it pays for itself in a lot of ways. But yeah, I mean, if you're a smaller company, that could sound like a, a really big climb. So, you know, even, you know, if you just think about things like, um, you know, um, you know, uh, you know, the Starbucks of the world who will pay for online college tuition of their employees, right? And in a, in an, for them, it makes sense in an industry with 100% turnover, you know, someone might stay the four or five years they're taking online classes for their college degree, and that's the return on investment for them. Um, you know, and then, you know, there's large and small employers and, you know, the Shake Shacks of the world and the container stores and the Costco's and um, Trader Joe's and things like that. You know, they take the approach that, you know, yes, we want to return on our investment, but we also have the approach that we want to be a good place to work that supports people. Um, and I guess finally, and you know, I'm a little trepidatious to talk about it, but Gravity Payments, um, which is a Seattle-based company that does credit card processing, they famously in 2015 set a minimum salary in their company. No job would pay less than $70,000 a year based on the research that you talked about. And it was amazing. And actually in the two years from when that was announced, um, something like 15% of their workforce had babies or their spouses had babies. Um, they finally had enough financial stability to start a family. Think about how transformative that is. Um, and also like buying apartments, buying houses, um, travel that they'd put off for a long time, and, you know, and other things like that, they were all able to do because they had that baseline of financial stability, right? Um, and the employer paid a big part in that. You know, if you're making $40,000 a year, with respect to all the advice that we've talked about, you're not gonna buy a house. Um, so it doesn't matter how responsible you are and values-based you are in buying a house, but if you make double that, you could start the planning, right? The conscious planning to get to that place. And, yeah, wonderful, uh, wonderful. You know, those are just great examples and there's plenty more and, and lots of other things too. Well, I wanna, yeah, I wanna underscore as you're listening in to, you know, today, that think about this. What this means is that you can do a little research when you're out there on the job market, or if you've got a job and you wanna switch, you can do a little research to start thinking about what is the approach that an organization is taking out there 
And remember that there are some that are more progressive. And so that's one way to take this information into your personal financial plan is to say, you know, this could be something that I could go and change and work at a different place with a, more support. Scott, you wanted to add a, a point? Yeah, no, I just want to reinforce that first off that, you know, one of the purposes in my writing this book was I wanted to show what's, what's being done and what is possible, um, both for employers to think about it more creatively, but for employees to do exactly what you say in your job search. Maybe these are some things you can key on and look at. Yeah. And let me just say, you know, one other very related thing. There are other things besides like direct financially financial stuff that actually has a big financial impact. If you support people with childcare needs, right, that takes a financial pressure at least partially off if you're subsidizing something or at least, you know, uh, something to that that effect. Even workplace flexibility and being able to give someone a hybrid work schedule saves people money, right? Um, so, you know, maybe not every organization can pay for the college tuition of your, uh, of their children, but, you know, everyone can have a pretty good paid time off or flexibility or, you know, some of these other things that really translate into relieving financial strains and pressures. Um, so we could think about these things more creatively too. Oh, thank you for adding that. And again, so if you're the other side of the equation listening in today as an employer and you're a smaller business or you're kind of overwhelmed by some of these bigger options, I want to really underscore what Scott just said, because just making sure people have paid sick time, paid time off, and that they actually feel like they can use that paid time off, that's great. And flexibility is amazing. For years, Jeff and I had school-age kids and we both just flexed our jobs. One of us was in charge one day after school and the other one was in charge the other day after school. And there was no cost of after school care or before school care because we could flex our jobs to meet those needs. And so there really is something that flexibility from an employer can offer to people that is hugely uh, game changing for them. So you do not have to be big to make these things happen. You can be small. Um, and make these things happen and really make a big difference for your employees. I want to raise one other thing up that I'm noticing um, in, in some of your stories, Scott, but uh, before, before I go there, there might be something else you want to underscore around what you learned around organizations being smart around work, family, and money. Well, I guess the recommendation I give to an employer is almost the, the organizational um, counterpoint or uh, exactly what we, you guys were talking about from an individual's point of view, you start with the values that you have. And How interesting. Have in mind, right? And mm -hmm. then everything should flow from that. So if you're an employer who, um, again, and I recommend having some sort of what I would call whole person workplace values, that part of your value, uh, part of how you value employees is I care about you more than just you performing at work and returning on my investment in you. If I care about you as more than that, then how do I translate that value into the things I do? And you know that could be pay, that could be time off, that could be other types of assistance. That could just be recognizing people's humanity throughout, right? And not just treating everybody like a, like a number in there, and then just getting to know people on a more personal level, and you know providing more personalized recognition and things like like that. That all flows together, but you know, start with really thinking about your values as an employer. And then, you know, you could think 
creatively about how you embed that into all the things you do. And you start where you are and, it, you know, take steps where you can. Um, and the final thing is listen to your employees, I think, is, is, is a real thing, too, is, mm. you know, I go through this exercise. Actually, I did this list last week with my human resources MBA students. You know, we, we went through this exercise of thinking about, like, if people carried a backpack full of the things that are stressful to them in their lives. Um, now think about different employees and different employee groups. What's in their backpacks? And then what can we do as an employer to relieve some of that? So, you know, maybe it is student loan debt. There's lots of companies now that um, are helping people with that, right? Pay it down kind of in like a matching system and things like that, that relieves something out of their backpack. Um, if it's childcare, we can help maybe partially relieve some of that. If it's, um, you know, whatever else it might be. Um, if we think about, you know, what are some, you know, sandwich generation people like me, um, you know, <laughs> like it's hard dealing with Medicare payments and paperwork and doctor paperwork for somebody who's four hours away from me. Um, that's hard. You know, there are some EAPs that help with that, that a company mm -hmm. can partner with to help that. And so we, we thought about this just exercise about how do we lighten the backpacks of like the stress that weighs people down. And financially is a huge part of that because if you're not at a, a decent financial base, everything's a stressor, right? Yeah. So um, I would encourage both individuals to think about your own backpacks um, and employers to think about like how maybe we can help alleviate some of the weight. That's really a beautiful metaphor. Love it. Love it. Hey, I, I, I was going to ask you a question, but I think you answered it in some ways, but maybe you'll want to add on to it because I think a lot of it starts with who the leaders are in these organizations and what their values are. And I want to give you one example, and then you might want to add to it. Um, you know, we've had Alex Pang, who wrote the book Shorter, about a 32-hour work week. And interestingly, a lot of the motivation for some of those workplaces was a leader who was overworked just was tired of working so hard and wanted to figure out a workplace where they were happy to show up again. And so they they figured out a workplace where, in his book, 100 organizations that are doing a four-day work week or 32-hour work week and offering the same amount of pay. And why they can do it is because they're earning the same amount of revenue. And what he shows you in the book is that they're just getting smarter about how to approach their work so that they can get it done efficiently in that time that they're limiting it to, that bounded four day or that bounded 32 hour work week. So the question I was gonna have for you, Scott, is are you seeing that there's a pattern about who the leaders are that's influencing how these decisions are? Is there some bottom up that happens around this or is it often a lot about who the leaders are? Yeah, I, culture probably starts from the top, but then becomes like a, hopefully a shared bottom up, middle out kind of thing. and. Um, yeah, I mean, it's hard to have some of these value-based things as part of your culture if leadership doesn't genuinely believe in it and genuinely act on it. Um, I think a lot of people have these values. They just don't, they, they don't see their way to enacting it. And, you know, I, I know a kind of, a, you know, a firm that, that we, we know and love and have highlighted many times that, you know, you think about Ryan, the financial services company, they shifted to, you know, this chief human resources officer wanted them to become a more flexible workplace for a long time. And then finally, the CEO bought in because he saw the impact of the inflexibility on an employee that he really cared about. Mm -hmm. um, once he got on board, boom, change happens reasonably quickly and thoroughly and with the support of leadership. Um, so I think to some degree, you're never going to change a culture unless leadership, um, you know, not just 
states the values, but like starts enacting the value. And then yeah. from there, you know, the top management can only do so much. The day to day of a workforce of a workplace is so much, you know, supervisor, employee, peer to peer. And, you know, so it has to, you know, grow from there. And a human yeah. resources department is a great place for a lot of this to, to be, um, uh, you know, to, to, to reinforced or to reinforce it, but it can't just be a lead HR no. initiative because then it's just a one-off on top of something else, right? Yeah. It has to be yeah. embedded in the, the regular management. Yeah. Wonderful. 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 Hey, so I'm going to take us in a slightly different direction. I didn't even think about this, but I'm looking at the two of you shared care dads, and we're going to get to someone's personal story in a second. So this is a good lead up for it. When you think about men and the work family balance equation, what advice, you know, Scott, you know, I've heard you say some pretty wise things about men thinking differently or family systems thinking differently that don't put men in the box of being the only or the most important or you know the go-to earner in a family um so just before we hear from we're going to tell you a story about someone who's really made some big changes around this so he can inspire you about why change is possible but before we go there scott any thoughts about advice you might give men or women about how we can think differently about this as men so, and women. Right. So the tide of society is going to push people to certain types of decisions, right? And if you just let that happen to you, regardless of what you want, you're probably going to have some sort of imbalance in your family, right? And maybe imbalance in the careers of the the, the, the two um, adults in the family. And, um, and a lot of times that drift is you know, men have to get kind of all into work and, you know, women, you know, you really should take care of your family first. And then it creates at the home, there's a primary parent and a secondary helper parent, which is usually the mom and then the dad. Um, and then careers that the dad's career gets pushed into and the woman's career is secondary. And despite of, you know, the fact that m probably most couples today go into their marriages thinking it's gonna be pretty egalitarian, the tide pushes them in a certain direction if you don't kind of actively fight it with your planning and decision making um, much like you know matt would talk about with finances um you've got to think about like what's your family structure going to be and how do we uphold that and um you know i had an easier way to find myself to do that thankfully but um a lot of couples do struggle with this and a lot of men have you know um they've been socialized a certain way Right, where I remember one of my best friends in college is an at-home dad. And when he stepped down from a pretty lucrative job to be the at-home dad, his father went crazy. His father was like, what did I pay for you to go to an Ivy League college? <laughs> this is what you're gonna do. And you know, thankfully my friend knew himself well enough to be like, sorry, dad, this is what I'm doing. This is what's right for me and for my family. And this is what we're doing. And he wasn't having it. But um, he does recall that conversation. And so a lot of men, especially those who might have some ambition at work, um, you, know, you know, this is like ingrained in you a little bit that, you know, you have to uphold a certain profile. Um, so I don't know if that fully answered your question. Yeah, but. no, it's great. It's, it's, it's not letting the tide direct you. But again, your mission statement as a family system direct you. And obviously that can change as our lives change and our circumstances change. Matt, any thoughts you have that you want to add to this. And then we're going to get to that story to inspire you about how change is possible. 
Yeah, I just want to say I love that entire conversation and certainly Scott's <laughs> response to this. Um, I think it just touches on a lot of the things we've talked about. One, what you said, Jessica, about what are your strengths, right? And how can we play to your strengths? And um, that's a big one. What Again, what is important to you? What isn't important to you? And then really just valuing people as people, right? And for all of the things that they are, right? And making money, you know, earning an income, that's an important skill. So is being the emotional core of your family, right? So is cooking and cleaning and maintaining a home. Like all of these things, these are all important pieces that can be part of your family structure. And just, again, valuing people's people, valuing all of the things that you as an individual, that your partner, that your children, that your extended family, that everyone can contribute to, to each other's lives. And um, yeah, that's what I would Wonderful. say. Wonderful. Well said, both of you. Really wonderful. The person who's coming up next is Gary Abood, and you're going to love his story. He's co-founder of Saga Educators and the Teacher Wellness Conference and an author and, no surprise, another shared care parent. And Gary's got a really cool personal story where he learned something and turned it into this visual that I'll explain, and then Gary will tell you more about he realized he and his wife had gotten into a harmful work family financial cycle. Yes, they were earning more, but they had less time at home, which meant that they had less time to do something at home, which means they had to outsource more, which meant they spent more and saved less so that they could work more and earn more and do the whole cycle all over again. And I want to really stop and think about that for a bunch of people today, really. Stop and think about that, because what Gary's story is going to tell you one way, there's many ways, one way to get out of that cycle. All right. So what he and his wife did, and it took, it was not light switch change, didn't happen overnight, but they took a series of steps where they were going to end up earning less, but then they were home more. They could do more at home. They outsourced less. They spent less. They saved more and they worked less. And that was so familiar to what Jeff and I did and so many shared care parents do. Whether you're two parents who live together, two parents who are separated, you can really both think about this model around how to approach your lives so that you can, whatever you're earning, have uh, spend less, have more. Um, because you're more involved. And not again, not everybody can figure this out. As I said at the beginning of the podcast, Bridget Schulte is going to help us think big about what we need to do as a society, and hopefully we can make some change for everybody. But this is a, this is a concept I hope you can take away from today's discussion. And I'm going to stop and have Gary share his story. Yeah, Gary. Yay. <laughs> Actually, I would love it if you don't mind. Um, could you put the first the harmful graphic up there, and it'll be a great yeah. way. Yes, kind of I sure, absolutely. Connect the story to a couple of pieces on there. Yep. But All while right. Jessica's bringing that up, I uh, just appreciate being able to be part of this conversation. It's a really important one, and appreciate the the comments and the efforts that Matt and Scott have been talking about in their work as well as yours, Jessica, here at Third Path. Um, so my story, my wife Janice and I are career educators. So we help people learn things. 
And the irony is that we were missing some of the lessons along the way that it took a long time for us to learn. And some of those are hard lessons as grownups that we learn that you just don't get prepared for all the time as a young person. So I heard Matt and Scott talk about some things that really resonated with me. I grew up in a culture and a family of origin that had one breadwinner and one homemaker. And that was pretty much the, the general consensus in my extended family for quite a bit of uh, people that I knew. And so I didn't really know too much different than that. So when my wife and I went into education as professionals, you know, there's not a, a really great way to be a full-time parent and a full-time um, professional at the same time as an educator. You either teach all day or you don't teach. Those were kind of the examples that we had. So we both went into teaching. We taught full-time. We were really good at it. And part of why we were really good at it is because we were really committed to it. So we spent a lot of time doing well by the students that we had, by the colleagues that we had, and by the work that we had. And it was important, meaningful, rewarding work. However, at the end of the day, you're trading your time for money, no matter what you're doing in a, in a setting like that. And so there was only so much time left over for us at the end of the day. Well, fast forward to when we started a family. Um, I should mention that at the same time that we started a family, we had two dogs. We were getting ready to move to a new home to be closer to our, our four uh, parents so that the grandparents could get to know their grandchild. A lot of typical things. Um, but also something that happened at that time is I won a teaching award called Michigan Teacher of the Year. And the State Teacher of the Year Award for the, the state, 50 states in the U.S. territories allows a teacher to spend a year outside of the classroom working on policy, advocacy with the State Department of Education and training other teachers. So I was starting to travel more. I was starting to get more opportunities for speaking and consulting work. And it really got me thinking differently about how I could use my educational talents. So it was both the best of times and the worst of times because <laughs> my wife was still teaching full time and we were both gone a lot. And so the graphic that you saw earlier that Jessica referenced essentially was our story that we were working a ton. We were high earning household combined income. But because of that, we were outsourcing things. We had to have a dog walker. We had to have full time child care. We were not home to cook or meal prep. So we're getting takeout all the time. We had to have a house cleaner, all these things because we couldn't get to the stuff ourselves. And so our income ended up going down. And we were like, boy, we're working so hard. And we're not saving any money here. What is going on? And of course, those things bring up tension points in any relationship. So we got to a, a point. Um, that really we had to stop and confront this issue. And that wasn't the only issue, there were other things, but in, in the sake of, for the sake of finances, that was a key point where we said, how could we do this differently? And I happened to come across Bridget Schulte's book, Overwhelmed. Um, I saw a news article about it and I thought, this is really interesting. And I read it and I usually, I actually read it to my daughter at 3 a.m. while she was eating, drinking a bottle <laughs> and as an infant in the nursery kind of a thing. And so I'm reading, I'm getting transformed in my thinking. And I, my wife and I kind of took all this content and we said, we need some help. We can't do this ourselves. We need to think this through differently. We ended up reaching out and getting in touch with Jessica, who mentored us in the third path. Coaching experience was really, really transformative for us. And we decided what we wanted to do, kind of you guys mentioned starting with values. We wanted to make a difference. We wanted to do it through education, but we wanted to be able to have more control and agency. So we had a little taste of consulting work in the education space. And we said, what if our five-year plan was to do that full-time and we would transition out of these roles? So that's what we did. And uh, long story short, as we developed a company and a program 
to help students with learning and behavioral difficulties and their families to be more successful in school or personal life or work life if they were in a, a work setting. So we would train them with skill coaching, provide advising to families to navigate educational issues, provide academic coaching and mentoring, test prep, you name it. And so that program we started offering about six years ago, and that started to take off a couple of years later. And in the pandemic, there were a lot of people that needed help with education, as you've all heard and experienced. And so we were positioned really well to be able to grow our business. We now have several employees that work for us, and it's allowed us over the years to have a much better integration between home and work. Although we work from home, so it's not a separation, it's an integration. And so I guess what we've learned now is that that allows us, we, you know, I guess comparatively might have less earning power, but we also have less spending obligations. And so if you look at it that way, if you really sit down and confront the income and the expenses of your life, and you look at it like a business would, you would say, here are ways that we can cut costs and in effect, not have to earn more to make up for it. So that was kind of the big lessons that we learned, and it's afforded us tremendous opportunity. And one last thing I'll share is that it sounds like it's an easy linear path, and I just want to say it is not. Um, it's not a linear path by any stretch of the imagination to do these sort of things, and it doesn't always have to look like the story I described. That's what we chose to end up doing. We did do it differently in the meantime. We said, what if one of us teaches part-time? One of us becomes an administrator. We tried different things in schools, and it was never the solution. It was ultimately, we had to do it on our own. And this past year, we actually started a second company, which was throwing us right back into startup mode. And of course, has us working a lot more, putting in longer hours, but we do it under our own terms. And so we have this ability now to control things a little bit more than we did when we worked for someone else. So that's our story. That's how it turned out. We're still figuring it out. But again, I want to encourage you that the, there's a leap of faith behind these kinds of things. And if you're at all wondering, how could I do this? And should I do this? Or could I do this? I want to tell you that the answer is yes to all of those things. It just requires doing some homework and what both Matt and Scott, as well as Jessica, have already shared today, that you need to talk with your partner. You need to start with your values. You need to really take some deep looks at what you can do and how you can do it differently because it's not about just doing the same things better. It's about doing things differently. Wow. All three of you have really done an incredible job today and given some really good advice. I'm going to get to seeing if anybody wants to add something from our panelists to the concepts that we've been talking about. I'm also going to have Sergio check if there's anybody who's got a question for us in the chat room. Uh, and then we'll have him speak that question out loud and see if one of our panelists wants to answer it. But I just want to thank you already. This has just been a fabulous conversation. I'm going to be showing some wrap-up slides soon. But, you know, Scott, any last thoughts before I put up a couple of wrap-up slides? Or, or Matt, anything you want to add? Yeah, um, I don't have that much to add. That, that was great. And Gary, thank you for that story. Um, <clears throat> Uh, there was a thing in the chat. The seventy thousand was based on an individual, so um, I don't know what that would be. For oh, right. Um, right. And then um, I, I guess you know all I'd say is, um, well, actually, I, I just have a quick question for Gary, if that's okay. Um, so I presume like the the making the switch, you know, was was pretty hard in the short run, right? Um, can can you would you mind just talking a little more about you know when you decided to kind of leave kind of like conventional work and and do more of your um like 
I, I don't know. It just seems like um, I, I understand your story, but I, I, I really um, I'm curious about the transition point. Yeah, it's a great question. So I'll, I'll kind of talk about some of the practicalities of how we made that transition. And it wasn't a clean cut. So like I mentioned, it wasn't a directly linear process. What we did is we sat down and we said, we have this idea for a program that we think we could build a business around. However, we don't have the startup capital to fund ourselves going off full time and not having a steady income with a young child at home on a regular basis. So I left working in schools I uh, stepped away full-time and said, I'll be a full-time parent for a year. And my wife stayed teaching full-time so that we had some steady income. We had benefits to cover us. And that allowed me the time to be with our young daughter at the time and raising her, but also using the, the in-between time and literally in-between naps, <laughs> in-between different things. Uh, anytime I could get to start building this build, business plan, starting to get clients, starting to have it kind of take off. And after a year's time, we had gotten enough client work to be able to not just sustain what we needed for me, but actually enough to be able to hire another person it was more than I could handle. And so we had agreed we would do it for one year. And if it totally flopped, I would go back to working in a school and we would just call it a day. But what happened is it actually went really well. And I needed to either hire someone to help me handle the load. Otherwise, I'd be now working full time just the same. And that's when my wife Janice decided. I'm ready to, to take the step out. And so we did that together. But one other practicality coming from teaching, uh, and depending on where you live in the country, teachers generally have very good insurance benefits compensation for the, for the most part. And I know that that may not be everywhere, but we kind of felt that we had some golden handcuffs with compensation and benefits. And so it really took us to look at the, the available options and opportunities that were out there to do things like healthcare differently, to do things like retirement differently. And so what I like to tell people when they come to me and, I, and I'm coaching them through these kinds of processes, is I say, it takes a golden key to unlock golden handcuffs. And so if you really start with the values that you have and you say, okay, is it that important to me that I have this level of healthcare when I may not actually be using it, and I don't have any time with my family to eat dinner with them or whatever it might work out. Uh, when we really did that, that investigation and looked into that, and we said, here are some options for us to get insurance that would be affordable and cover enough of what we need. And we'll take the risk because we're a healthy young family. Um, we kind of did that calculation and it worked out in such a way that we were able to move forward and that allowed us to do so. Now I recognize everybody's situation won't yeah. be the same, but those were a few decisions that we had to make and steps that we took to be able to work through it. And as things grew, we realized again, we were getting at our capacity. And if we wanted to maintain the integration, we had to then hire people, which yeah. meant again, going through that cycle of it's more work, it's more time, it's less money. And then you eventually kind of come out of that. So overall the trend is upward, but it's not a perfectly linear path. That's such a great additional point. Thank you, Frank, for that question and those answers. Wanted to remind you as we wrap things up today, don't forget, if you've enjoyed today's conversation, you can continue it by joining our Trailblazers Facebook group, following us on social media, or coming back next time on the second Thursday of every month. And as you can see, our nonprofit has been successfully building a community of role models and change agents. Please help us continue this work and support our free resources like our Thursdays with Third Path podcasts by making a small monthly or annual donation.
Okay, so I asked our speakers today to come prepared with one last thought that they wanted to share. Gary, I'm gonna start with you. What's one quick last thought you have, then Matt, and then Scott. I would say that taking a third path approach to finances and integrated work life is going to be challenging, but it will definitely be worth the challenge. It's rewarding, even though it's challenging. Thank you, Gary. I couldn't agree with you more. <laughs> Matt. Yeah, um, I just want to, I thought it was really interesting hearing Scott talk about employers valuing their employees as people. And I think that ties into when we talked about the personal side, valuing yourself as a person and not just a series of financial decisions, successes, failures, um, but valuing yourself as a person and then using that to guide your decision-making, I mean, really in every area of your life, but certainly when it comes to, to work and money as well. Wonderful. Couldn't agree more with that too. Wonderful. Scott, the final word. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I guess, you know, it, it sounds simple and I know it's harder than this, but start with what your values are and your priorities are as an individual, as a member of your family. Um, and, you know, if you're a manager or a employer or whatever, that too. Um, you start there and then you, you try to make decisions that are aligned with that over time. You, you, you get a long way towards where you want to go. Yeah, absolutely. And what's so wonderful in all of the examples we heard today is that there are people who have made progress both personally and in organizations. So don't forget, you can make this change. You can go look for an organization who values these things. And we hope the best for you on your journey. Thanks, everybody. Thanks.